divine financial mandates. No, God does not require you to agree with someone's investing strategy. My name is Garrett O'Hara, and this is Mocha Thought, January 10th, 2022. If you pay any attention to what I tweet and blog about finance, you probably know that I'm mostly a fan of market cap weighted index funds and a harsh critic of cryptocurrency. I also wrote a total of five posts concerning investing at Things Above Us, three on socially responsible investing, one on the difference between investment and gambling, and one concerning the March 2020 market crash. Since early last year, I've also become more of a fan of value investing. But my writing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency has been limited to short jabs. You know, like quick punches, not vaccines. Come on, man. In this post, I need to address a couple of posts that recently came to my attention. Exhibit A is Ask the Economist, Should a Christian Invest in Bitcoin? by Greg Phelan, who earned his PhD in economics from Yale and serves as Associate Professor of Economics at Williams College, writing at the Gospel Coalition blog. Exhibit B is Christians are called to use money based in truth, Bitcoin, by Adam Moore who holds a bachelor's degree in economics, guest writing at Bitcoin Magazine. Both are elders at their respective churches. Dividends versus Capital Gains, The Wrong Dichotomy Early in his article, Phelan draws on a dichotomy between dividends and capital gains, and then cites that Bitcoin may produce the latter, but not the former. I don't believe the illustration works all that well, and neither does Moore. I'll start with my own angle on it here before moving on to critiquing Moore's article. No dividends equals gambling? Phelan writes in part, quote, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies produce no dividends. They will never provide a place to stay or earn income or even interest. That's not a prediction, it's just a fact. And unlike a stock, which may pay higher dividends in the future, and thus justify a price increase, crypto will never pay dividends in the future. Future dividends cannot justify a price increase for crypto. So why do people invest in crypto? Because they expect the price to rise. We have a word in finance for an investment like this. A bubble. An asset that never pays a dividend but has a price that keeps rising is a bubble. An investor can believe Bitcoin is a bubble and rationally invest so long as she expects to sell out before the bubble pops. But that isn't investing. That's gambling and it's a zero-sum game, unquote. I can summarily poke a hole in this argument with one word, gold. Gold produces no dividends, it doesn't earn income or interest, there is a limited amount of it in the world, and no more of it is presently being created, although it is being mined. But many hold, falsely I believe, that gold is a good inflation hedge for individual investors. After all, the typical gold investor probably isn't looking for astronomical returns, but is simply attempting to hedge risk. Hedging risk is not gambling, even if I think your hedge will not work. To be fair to Phelan, I'm sure TGC only gave him so high of a word count to put out every single qualifier to his argument. I imagined he would respond to this by noting that gold and other, cre- gold and other commodities have a fundamental difference with crypto tokens. They are tangible and have uses other than means of exchange. Gold has industrial uses in electronics and can be made into jewelry. You can't make anything out of crypto token. As an aside, 
One study found that a Roman centurion during the time of the New Testament made the same amount in gold as a United States military O3, an Army Marine Corps or Air Force captain, or a Navy or Coast Guard lieutenant, makes in current times. This goes to show that gold may be a good inflation hedge if you are planning on winning the Methuselah Challenge or managing an endowment. Dividends versus Productivity Phelan's article explains early on, quote, Stick with me here. The return on any investment is found by adding the dividend yield, the value your investment produces, and the capital gain, the change in price from what you paid, unquote. I understand that Phelan is trying to keep things simple, considering his general audience and probable word count limitation. It's not as if he doesn't know what I'm about to explain, but I believe this was too simple. It is true that the return on any investment is the sum of the dividend yield and of the capital gain. The issue is that earnings don't equal dividends. Suppose you owned one share of company XYZ at the start of the year, and the price is $100. At the end of the year, the price has appreciated to $110 based on positive earnings reports, and the board needs to decide what to do with this $10 per share of free cash. They could decide to distribute it to the shareholders. Payday. $10 shows up in your brokerage account. The problem is that the share price will drop to $100 because that free cash is now in your account and not the company's. Your net worth did not increase or decrease by virtue of receiving the $10 in cash, at least before taxes. The company could also decide to invest the $10 in something else to try to make the company bigger or just hold on to the cash. No big deal on your part, you still have $110. The company still produced value for you even though it did not distribute a dividend. And the IRS can't come after your $10. Yet. All this is to say that dividends alone are not the value that an investment produces. But now we have two problems with crypto tokens. The first is the difference between them and gold. You can actually make stuff or do stuff with gold. The second is similar to gold. Crypto tokens are not a productive asset. It's not merely that they have no dividends, they have no productivity. Put another way, you buy bunnies both genders, you expect more bunnies. You buy stocks, you expect earnings. You buy gold or crypto tokens, and they sit there as the price changes for better or for worse. If we could somehow pound the idea of productive assets versus non-productive assets into the minds of Americans, our, our country would be a better place. Bitcoin as a Christian duty? Let's shift now to Adam Moore's article. I'll try not to say too much about Moore's tone. Uh, it is evident that th it is evident throughout that Moore's audience is less a general the Gospel Coalition audience and more the readers of Bitcoin magazine from such crass lines as the same tired Keynesian talking points that have served to enslave humanity with its abject worship of statist monetary policies. And dear Greg, did you also know that if man was meant to fly, God would have given him wings? Moore argues in favor of Bitcoin not only as a sound investment and as a general currency, but also as a divine mandate, that Christians are obligated to convert to Bitcoin because fiat currency is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. I will argue against all three of these points. 
the investment, the currency, and the divine mandate. Investment thesis. Moore argues at the dividend versus capital gain dichotomy that I critiqued earlier by pointing out not gold, but real estate. Quote, for instance, real estate produces no dividend, and yet we understand it to be a profitable investment. Unquote. This is only partially true. Much like how gold can be made in or into something, real estate can be developed. Purchasing already developed real estate yields immediate dividends through rental income. Purchasing farmland yields dividends through whatever the farm grows. And purchasing raw land and then developing it is done with the goal of producing rental income, whether for the income itself or with the hope of selling and taking a capital gain. How does one develop a crypto token? Moore argues in the next paragraph that Phelan's argument, future dividends cannot justify a price increase for crypto, is absolutely false because, quote, precious metals can also be expected to rise in price due to the falling value of the dollar, unquote. But that's not a dividend, that's capital appreciation. And that's an okay thing to seek, as I argued. But Moore goes on in this paragraph to compare Bitcoin to beachfront real estate. And again, real estate can be developed. Someone wants to pay money to hang out on that beachfront, not merely buy it off the last purchaser. Later on, Moore argues against Phelan's point that with real assets, you can earn a return because you put the money at risk and it is put to productive use. Moore rebuts, what better productive use could there possibly be than to wrest control of the monetary policy from maniacal God-hating socialists back into the hands of the working man? Besides being cringy rhetoric, it's also a category error. And it's not as if Bitcoin mining is a common man's task. This is an industry. Back in the day, the political boogeyman was big tobacco. Then we had big oil. Then it was big soy. Now it's big pharma and big tech. I don't doubt that blockchain may have big economic benefits later in the future. Perhaps then a politician will utter big crypto. Currency thesis. Part of the public confusion surrounding Bitcoin, I believe, is that it's being hailed both as an investment and as a currency. Moore calls price stability the old devilish lie, as I don't want my money staying merely stable, I want my money to be deflationary. I won't go into how and whether deflation in general may be bad, that's too much of a rabbit hole. But we need to step back and consider distinctions of use cases. Earlier, when I was critiquing Phelan, I made a distinction between seeking capital appreciation and an inflation hedge. Holding 5% of a portfolio in gold is an intended inflation hedge. Holding 30 to 50% of one's stocks in small cap value, this is yours truly, is an aggressive seeking of total return. And holding an emergency fund in liquid cash is for safety. I don't need my basic bank account, emergency fund, to be, a, to be deflationary. I don't hold even a quarter of my net worth in straight cash. I don't need my methods of payment for weekly expenses to be deflationary. I need them to be stable. Inflation less than 6.8% sure would be nice. But stable prices mean, one, I know about how much I'm going to pay for my pizza, and two, my pizza provider knows how much to charge me because he knows how much the raw materials and labor will cost. Divine Mandate. But about that title, Christians are called to use money based in truth, Bitcoin. The very last clause of the article reads, I suggest that converting fiat for Bitcoin is the duty of every Christian. 
Here's a quote. The truth is, the only good money in the sight of God Almighty is sound money. Money is nothing more than a measurement of value. The Bible says that false weights and measures are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 20, verse 10. The Federal Reserve has been diluting the money supply ever since 1933 and put the nail in the coffin in 1971. This is theft. Government banks are not playing by the rules. This is perverting the scales of justice, spending more money than you take in. This dilutes the wealth of people holding dollars. God explicitly warned the people of Israel against unjust measurements. Leviticus 19, verses 35 through 36, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just weights, just balances rather, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Unjust money, or money that constantly increases in number, is theft, and a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not steal. The reference in Leviticus to the Lord's salvation of the people of Israel underscores the covenantal significance of this command. Unquote. Applied broadly, this stated principle doesn't even apply to just fiat currency. Old monetary standards based on precious metals had such metals still being actively mined without a known upper limit. Governments earned seniorage revenue by minting coins with an amount of metal worth less than their face value. The very first sin was, in part, a theft. It will always be with us until the Lord returns. Aside, Moore is a post-millennial, so he might actually disagree. Moreover, Moore not only admits that Bitcoin is unstable, but also proclaims how it is deflationary. Imagine unstable or deflationary literal weights. Sorry, divers. But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Do you see these edges? They're shaved. Somebody has been stealing metal off this coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, I'll bet you Caesar issued this coin for a greater face value than the value of the underlying metal. He is a thief. You must free yourselves from this monetary system of seniorage slavery. Then the Pharisees were satisfied that Jesus was the political savior for whom they were looking. Broadly, if we grant that the Federal Reserve is doing evil, is converting to Bitcoin the duty of every Christian, no more than one can argue that storing gold in your home or buying value stocks instead of growth stocks are Christian duties, no more than the duty of Christians in countries with unstable currencies to use U.S. dollars. We are indeed in this world and not of this world, and while we are in this world, we actually do need to render unto Caesar in U.S. dollars. And that alone will be enough for everyone to continue using our currency. We can argue all day about the Federal Reserve and whether the U.S. should return to the gold standard. But it doesn't create a duty to convert to Bitcoin, let alone hold it at all. Uh, We must not place any greater burden on fellow believers than that to which God has called us already. Zero-sum games and uncompensated risk. Let's go back to Phelan's article for a moment. In arguing against Bitcoin, he wrote, quote, We have a word in finance for an investment like this, a bubble. An asset that never pays a dividend but has a price that keeps rising is a bubble. An investor can believe Bitcoin is a bubble and rationally invest so long as she expects to sell out before the bubble pops. But that isn't investing, that's gambling, and it's a zero-sum game, unquote. Having addressed the issue of dividends versus capital gains, I want to point out one more quirk the concepts of the zero-sum game 
and idiosyncratic or uncompensated risk. Zero-sum game. I suspect even zero-sum game may be high economist talk for some, so let me illustrate for a moment. Uh, Five friends at a house are playing a friendly game of poker with actual U.S. coins. Each starts with $10 and understands that they could lose it all. The house is charging nothing for providing the venue. In the end, the amount on the table is still $50. That's a zero-sum game. John C. Bogle, father of the index fund, also described stock picking as a zero-sum game. It's not the trading of shares that creates value. The creation of value comes from the underlying work going on at the companies represented by the stocks. The trading of shares is a process of price discovery, where each trader with each trade thinks he is getting a better deal. So if you pick individual stocks, are you gambling? By the way, in this game of poker, the house takes a cut. Someone at the New York Stock Exchange has to get paid. And don't get me started on Robin Hood. Uncompensated risk. There seems to be an underlying assumption that the taking on of uncompensated risk is gambling. And note that's not dependent on whether the compensation actually shows up later, but on whether the compensation is expected. As I said earlier, you buy stocks, you expect earnings. Here's the thing. All kinds of investments come with degrees of uncompensated risk. Let's use Apple stock and compare it to the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index ETF. That's called VTI. That's the ticker for the Vanguard fund. VTI is an index fund that seeks to hold every publicly traded U.S. stock in proportion to its market capitalization. Yeah, which the total value of the stock Market capitalization is the total value of the stock in the market. So there is literally no stock picking involved. In other words, VTI, uh, within a context, within a U.S. context, is not a zero-sum game. And disclosure, I own VTI. Over the past year, according to Morningstar, Apple returned 34.48%, a spectacular return. And VTI returned only 25.64%. Still spectacular, but not Apple spectacular. So if you had chosen Apple, you would have made more. But you made more by taking on significant single-company risk, significant uncompensated idiosyncratic risk. By taking VTI, you would have had the average return of the U.S. market while canceling out this single-company risk. Put another way, if Apple had gone the way of Enron, you have lost everything with individual Apple shares. Apple is VTI's largest holding at 5.6% of its total. Losing 5.6% is better than 100%. So by the above logic of uncompensated risk, if you buy individual Apple shares instead of VTI, are you gambling? The economic argument rabbit hole goes deeper. If you buy a second house as an investment, you're taking on massive uncompensated risk Because you didn't buy a real estate index fund. The ghost of Jack Bogle haunts you at night. Are you gambling? You may be vaguely familiar with the difference between value stocks and growth stocks. Value stocks have lower market prices relative to some fundamental measure on paper. General Motors stock is trading at 1.67 times its book value. That's a basic sum of the company's assets minus liabilities. Tesla Motors is trading at 38.12 times book value. If you buy Tesla, 
you're paying 38 times more for that share of the company than that thing is worth if the company liquidates. If you buy Tesla shares, are you gambling? I could go on about how I believe tilting towards value stocks by means of value ETFs is a better strategy than going with a total market, let alone buying individual shares. But that doesn't make people who disagree gamblers. Maybe someone really thinks that Tesla or Apple shares are worth that much based on their technological promise. In fact, the market as a whole does, or those companies would not be trading at those kinds of prices. We need a different definition of gambling. What is gambling? So far, we've been throwing around the term gambling, and for the most part, ascribing to it something close to taking on uncompensated risk. Hey, everybody. On a Things Above post in 2019, I argued this concerning investment versus gambling. Quote, I believe we can argue soundly that financial investment is not gambling, at least when these conditions are met. One, most importantly, our hearts are clean. We are satisfied with God's provision in our lives. We are seeking to invest not because we want to hoard and get rich, but because we wish to be good stewards of what God has provided, not to become a burden on others and to help relieve others' burdens. Two, we have a reasonable expectation that our investments will return a profit. In other words, our investment choices reflect our desire to soundly steward what God has provided us. For example, if we reasonably believe that the U.S. government will be around in 10 years when it's time for them to pay up on a 2.70% 10-year treasury bond. By the way, they don't pay 2.70% anymore. If you buy new ones, it's lower. (laughs) Then it's extraordinarily difficult to call this gambling. If we invest in the broad stock market, think VTI like we talked about earlier, with a reasonable expectation that we will receive a return when we expect to sell the investment decades into the future, even when the market will experience many significant dips over time, this is also difficult to characterize as gambling, unquote. I also quoted a Grace to You article, which plainly lists five reasons why gambling is sinful. One, because it denies the reality of God's sovereignty by affirming the existence of luck or chance. Two, because it is built on irresponsible stewardship, tempting people to throw away their money. Three, because it erodes a biblical work ethic by demeaning and displacing hard work as the proper means for one's livelihood. Four, because it is driven by the sin of covetousness, tempting people to give in to their greed. And five, because it is built on the exploitation of others, often taking advantage of poor people who think they can gain instant wealth, unquote. We may reasonably apply these screens to our heart attitudes when we are seeking to understand whether our investment may actually be gambling. Am I buying Tesla stock because I'm denying God's sovereignty over my circumstances? Am I converting to Bitcoin because I'm seeking to evade godly work? Uh, Am I tilting to small cap value stocks because I'm just plain old greedy? These aren't economic questions. These are hard questions. And I can't answer them for you. It is these hard questions that should be our framework of what constitutes gambling.